Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, torture, sexual situations, and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you listen. On the night of November 29, 1987, 23-year-old Shirley Ellis clutched a plate of homemade food as she walked down Delaware's Route 40. It was three days after Thanksgiving, and she wanted to deliver leftovers to a friend in the hospital. Without a car, she chose to hitchhike. The holiday warmth was already gone. Rain beat down on her shoulders and soaked her high-top sneakers. Thankfully, a car pulled over. The driver was 30-year-old Stephen Brian Pinnell. He offered Shirley a ride, and though he was six foot five and weighed almost 300 pounds, he surprised her with his soft-spoken demeanor. She jumped in. However, instead of going straight to the hospital, Stephen headed in a different direction. The young woman probably protested, but her cries would have been futile. Stephen continued on. He had her right where he wanted. He pulled over at a remote location and parked. Immediately, Stephen forced himself on Shirley. She tried to fight back, but he easily overpowered her. Using plastic ties, Stephen bound Shirley's wrists and ankles, covered her mouth with duct tape, and stripped her. She was found later that night, but the rain had rinsed away all evidence of her killer. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're exploring the brutal crimes of Stephen Brian Pinnell, Delaware's first confirmed serial killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In today's episode, we'll discuss Stephen's fear of disappointing those around him, his pent-up rage, and the sadistic wishes he hid just beneath his surface. Lastly, we'll watch as Stephen finally achieves fulfillment by acting out a sadistic BDSM porn. Next time, we'll dive into Stephen's hunting habits along Route 40. Plus, we'll hear how an undercover female cop trying to lure the killer came terrifyingly close to becoming his next victim. We have all this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. There's a certain freedom in driving just for the sake of it. With no destination and no deadlines in sight, it's just you, the radio, and your thoughts. Even traffic doesn't seem that bad. As your body shifts into autopilot and the white dotted lines flash by in a hypnotic cadence, your mind wanders. Here, you're far from everyday life. You're alone with your fantasies. You're free to be the real you. But as the tires eat through miles of asphalt and midnight gives way to dawn, you might realize you can't outrun your secrets. For his whole life, Stephen Brian Pinnell kept his most gruesome thoughts to himself. And with all his secrecy, there are many aspects of his life we'll never be able to confirm. Information that detectives, victims, and his own wife and children all desperately want. But only Stephen and Route 40 will ever know the whole truth. Stephen Brian Pinnell was born on November 22, 1957, in Wilmington, Delaware. His parents, Elaine and William Pinnell, were devout Catholics with a comfortable, wholesome lifestyle. While Elaine stayed home to take care of Stephen and the house, William was a tax accountant at Wilmington Trust. After work, he kept busy with the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic organization. Stephen also attended Catholic school, but he was very shy. Stephen preferred to keep to himself and blend into the background. However, he did make an unlikely acquaintance. One day, Stephen watched his neighbor, Harry Manelski, pull his police cruiser into the driveway. When Harry stepped out of the car, Stephen stared at his uniform in awe. He wandered over to the officer and shyly said hello. Soon, they were sitting on the front steps, Harry describing what it was like to be a cop. This may have planted a seed in Stephen's mind, an interest in police work, and a desire for control. The two neighbors struck up a friendship. Harry enjoyed Stephen's enthusiasm. Plus, the boy often helped the Manelskis cut their grass or carry in groceries. Harry later described him as, quote, a pretty good kid. However, not everyone shared Harry's opinion of the young boy. Stephen failed the first grade and had to repeat the year. He likely felt bad about this. Now the already shy child had let down his teachers and his parents. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. 
Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a study published in Journal of Educational Psychology, students who were held back in first grade struggled to be accepted by their peers later on. The repeated year also likely affected Stevens' confidence. In a 2020 interview, psychologist Lynn Kaywood reported that failing a grade can lead to lowered self-esteem. Stephen completed the next few grades without incident. Finally, in high school, he seemed to get his footing. There, Stephen tried to be as helpful as possible, just like he did with his neighbor, Harry. A social studies teacher remembered the teenager volunteering to set up events, then coming back later to clean up. His kindness was especially noticeable due to his size. The teenager was over six feet tall. He towered over his classmates, but was still soft-spoken and timid, like a giant, gentle teddy bear who was scared to hurt a soul. And unlike other eventual serial killers, he couldn't bear to cause discomfort to an animal. A friend from high school described a hunting trip where Stephen couldn't pull the trigger when he had a duck in his sights. That's not all. Stephen had a pet hamster named Cupcake. When the hamster got sick, the vet couldn't save it. But Stephen refused to let the pet be euthanized. Perhaps in an attempt to toughen up, Stephen signed up for the wrestling team. The coaches were likely ecstatic at the sight of a hefty, tall teenager at tryouts. But Stephen was not a fighter. He didn't intimidate anyone or command respect. He quit the team halfway through his second season. It seems Stephen then tried to make himself as small as possible. Stephen's behavior might be better explained through attachment theory. British psychologist John Bowlby theorized that there are three major styles of attachment, secure, ambivalent, and avoidant. We adopt a type based on the kind of love and attention we receive as children. Then later on, it affects how we handle strife and romantic relationships. Studies show that those who are securely attached are better able to address conflict and share intimate feelings. But those with an avoidant attachment style, possibly like Stephen, find disagreements much more anxiety-inducing. So they avoid activities and relationships that might lead to rejection. This might explain Stephen's decision to quit wrestling and his lack of close friendships. Instead, Stephen floated from click to click, never getting too close to anyone. By keeping to himself and avoiding all possible rejection, Stephen made it through high school by keeping everyone around him at a distance. Finally, in 1976, the 18-year-old graduated and moved on. At first, it seemed like a fresh start for Stephen. Now he could pursue the career he'd dreamed about since he was a child, being a police officer. Stephen studied criminology at Brandywine College. He seemed to be on the path to a bright future, but he only stayed for two semesters. It's possible he was simply too afraid of academic failure, just like how he quit the wrestling team. Or perhaps he knew he didn't need a college degree to become a police officer. After leaving school, Stephen applied for the cadet program at the Wilmington Police Department, the same department his neighbor was in. But Stephen wasn't accepted. He told his friend it was because he couldn't pass the physical. He said he was just too fat. Discouraged, Stephen didn't even consider applying again. He gave up on his dream right then and there. The young man likely feared that every opportunity was a path to failure. He had no prospects and no one to share his struggles with. But he wouldn't be able to hold in all his guilt and disappointment forever. Eventually, he'd need a way to express his pain. 
Coming up, the gentle giant discovers violence. Listeners, we want to take a moment to tell you about something very special happening at ParCast. It's a month-long event called Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, commemorating the Earth Day celebration and featuring new episodes across the entire network. Like on Unsolved Murders, explore the life, career, and shocking murder of primatologist Diane Fossey. Or on Solved Murders, discover a pair of tragedies where the good intentions of environmentalists also turned them into targets. And coming up on Serial Killers, two men whose love of the outdoors was outmatched by their desires to kill. Starting next week, catch these episodes and more all month long. Just look for the Dark Green Earth Crimes and Conspiracies artwork and listen for free, only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Stephen Brian Pinnell attended Catholic school for much of his childhood. Since failing first grade and dropping out of wrestling, he'd already experienced a lot of disappointment. By 1978, he had learned to avoid rejection by keeping to himself and steering away from his goals. After abandoning his dream job as a police officer, Stephen worked as a stock boy at a grocery store called Ellesmere Dry Goods. It was a simple, manageable life, if not lonely. But that was about to change. One night in 1979, Stephen met Vera Kathy Huber at a bar. She was five years older than him and already had a daughter from a previous marriage. But something clicked. We don't know a lot about their early courtship, but Stephen was known to be helpful in high school, so he may have showered her with attention and acts of service. And perhaps for the first time in Stephen's life, she returned the affection. Maybe it was the first thing that didn't end in failure. In 1981, they moved in together and got married. Unfortunately, this wasn't good news for the newlyweds. Stephen's parents didn't approve of Vera. We don't know why. Perhaps because she was divorced, or perhaps it just wasn't a good fit. Either way, shortly after the wedding, Vera and Stephen's mother, Elaine, got into a fight. This must have been a new and extremely uncomfortable position for Stephen to be in. He hated disappointing people, especially his mom and dad. And now the couple who raised him disliked the woman he cared about the most. Rather than face his parents' disapproval, he stopped talking to them completely. If he didn't see or speak to them, he wouldn't have to feel their anger. It was a classic example of avoidance. According to a 2018 study in Journal of Anxiety Disorders, avoidance is a maladaptive behavioral response to anxiety. So when Stephen felt distressed about the fight between Vera and his mother, he retreated. But this likely didn't help anything. Avoidance typically leads to increased stress since the problem isn't being solved. And as the saying goes, what you resist persists. It seems that when Stephen didn't hash things out with his parents, the stress piled up. Eventually, something within him cracked. At some point in 1981, Stephen broke into a Pike Creek tobacco shop. He stole a box of coins and porn mags. Officials caught Stephen and charged him with burglary and criminal mischief. This must have horrified his parents and confused his wife. It was really out of character. It seemed he had no motive for the crime. Stephen pled guilty. The arrest served as a wake-up call. Stephen decided to finally make a change, even if it could end in failure. 
Around this time, Stephen enrolled at Delaware Technical Community College, where he studied electrical work. He was hired as an apprentice in the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Union Local 313. By the mid-80s, he was honing his craft and had a growing family. He and Vera moved to a mobile home in Glasgow Pines Trailer Court. They had two more children in addition to Vera's daughter. He even made up with his parents so they could spend time with their grandchildren. As the kids grew, Stephen doted on them. They played sports and worked on homework together. He even gave his teenage stepdaughter advice about boys. By now, Stephen was six foot five and nearly 300 pounds, but he used his intimidating frame for good. One year, he dressed as Santa Claus for his old job at Ellesmere Dry Goods. Afterward, he walked through the neighborhood so every kid had the chance to see Santa. Not only was Stephen's life back on track, but it seemed better than ever before. However, just like his other pursuits, this road eventually came to an end. Just before Thanksgiving 1986, his mother visited. She saw Stephen discipline his kids and didn't approve of his methods. Elaine said, I guess I'll have to spank you and make you go to bed if you don't stop doing that to the children. Not only did Stephen hate disappointing his mother, but something about her response hit home. She'd threatened to humiliate him in front of his own family. Stephen was so angry, he refused to speak to his mother for an entire year. While his grudge persisted, everything started to crumble around him. Stephen ran up the credit card bills, perhaps to offset his resentment. It put a deep strain on the marriage, leading to heated arguments. It's possible his shame increased with every fight, until finally he exploded. He screamed profanities at his wife and the children, so loudly even the neighbors could hear. Vera's disappointment had cut him to the bone, so now he responded with viciousness. We don't know when the abuse began, but he started to hit Vera. One day, he broke her arm. The tension escalated in early 1987. Vera's mother died and the couple wanted to buy her house, but they lost the opportunity. He knew it was his fault and he felt his wife would never forgive him for the slip up. He must have felt trapped by shame and he needed a place to get away from it all. When his emotions grew too intense, especially after fights with Vera, Stephen hopped in his car and drove off. It didn't matter which direction, he had no destination in mind. He'd be on the road making turns randomly for hours. He wanted to escape the bills, his wife, and his defeat, if only for a little while. Like someone wandering the desert, Stephen drove aimlessly through the night, hoping for a sign. But it seems driving became another form of maladaptive behavioral response. Instead of dealing with his career or his financial or relationship issues, he let the problems drift away in his rearview mirror. Of course, no matter how far he went, troubles always waited for him when he returned. Eight months into his electric work apprenticeship, his organization suddenly expelled him. Around 1987, Stephen earned his Delaware Master Limited electrician's license which expanded the types of projects he could take on. But once again, Stephen chose failure before it could choose him. No matter what, he just couldn't hold down a job. Most gigs only lasted about six months. Without success in either marriage or career, the failing electrician had to look elsewhere for validation. And this led him to porn. 
Stephen had enjoyed porn for years, perhaps even healthily at some point, but now it might have become another maladaptive behavioral response. According to a 2018 study in Journal of Behavioral Addictions, watching porn is sometimes coupled with maladaptive daydreaming. People looking to escape their anxieties imagine elaborate sex scenes, which distract them from their troubles. For Stephen, pornography preoccupied his mind, made him feel better, and absorbed him in fantasy. At some point, Stephen started exploring domination and bondage porn. It's possible Stephen was a sexual sadist, or someone who finds pleasure in the humiliation, fear, or pain of another person. This desire can come from a need for escape or control. Stephen had likely felt powerless for years, stuck under the thumb of his parents and teachers. Through porn, he didn't have to worry about disappointing glares, pointed accusations, or hurtful fights. In his fantasies, he was in charge. One day at the adult film store, Stephen came across a VHS called The Taming of Rebecca. The slipcase showed a woman with short brown hair in a flimsy red outfit putting some sort of tool suggestively into her mouth. The cover promised to have, quote, real sadists screaming in delight. Stephen brought the tape home. He slipped the cool plastic out of its cover and pushed it into the VCR player. Through the hazy scan lines on screen, Stephen watched the story unfold. It was about a young woman named Rebecca who escapes her abusive father and goes to a school for wayward girls. Only her headmaster took punishment to a whole new level. Stephen gazed at the TV, the light dancing in his eyes, as he watched the principal character drive a safety pin through the actress's nipple. It was only a matter of time before he started looking for his own Rebecca to tame. Coming up, Stephen picks up a doomed hitchhiker. Now back to the story. In 1987, Stephen Brian Pinnell approached his 30th birthday with little enthusiasm. He spent his days avoiding work and watching porn. At night, Stephen fought with his wife and drove around Delaware until the sun came up. While in his car, Stephen could let his mind wander. He could fantasize about the kind of man he wanted to be, or about the smut he'd looked at earlier that day. However, the pornography likely didn't make him feel as powerful as it once had. According to a 2018 study in Journal of Behavioral Addictions, people can build a tolerance to their maladaptive daydreaming. To feel the same relief and pleasure, a porn user may then need greater stimulation. Stephen already consumed violent porn. There wasn't much more he could do, at least as far as VHS tapes and magazines went. Perhaps after a number of late nights thinking about the taming of Rebecca, Stephen wanted to bring his fantasies to life. On the night of November 29, 1987, a week after his 30th birthday, Stephen hit the road as usual, cruising the dark, desolate highways. It was likely hard to see this milestone birthday come and go when he'd accomplished so little. It was a chilly, rainy night, and Stephen's headlights reflected off the pavement. He was near Wilmington on Route 40, when he spotted a young woman with shoulder-length brown hair carrying a tray of food. This was 23-year-old Shirley Ellis. She'd just come from post-Thanksgiving festivities with her family and wanted to take a plate to her friend in the hospital. 
He pulled over and offered Shirley a ride. She was accustomed to hitchhiking, and as a former sex worker, she knew how to take care of herself. So she hopped in. It's unclear what happened next, but at some point, Shirley must have realized the electrician wasn't taking her to the hospital, and this was one bad situation she wasn't getting out of. After Stephen parked at an unknown location, he overpowered the young woman. She tried to fight back, kicking and scratching, but she was no match for the large man. He held her down and put silver duct tape over her mouth. He bound her ankles and wrists. She must have looked just like some of the girls in Stephen's magazines. Using a type of shears called side cutters, he mutilated Shirley's nipple. She screamed, but her pain was muffled behind the duct tape. He kept going, taking a chunk of skin from her stomach and from her left breast. As Shirley sobbed, Stephen put away the side cutters and pulled out a plastic wire tie. He slipped it around her neck and squeezed, choking her. Stephen's use of suffocation is an important clue about his motives. According to a 2007 study in Criminal Profiling, International Theory, Research and Practice, strangulation is much more common in sadistic attacks, where violence is done solely for dominance or to cause pain. This contrasts non-sadistic violence, where the attack is motivated by external factors like a robbery or an argument. Strangulation gives the attacker the feeling of power. The study also noted that while sadistic attackers like to use strangulation, they don't always kill their victim that way. This was true of Stephen, who removed the plastic wire around Shirley's neck while she was still alive. He watched her choke and gag, still muzzled by the tape. He grabbed another tool, something heavy, likely a hammer. Then he swung it, hitting her skull. Shirley slumped over, but Stephen wasn't done. He bashed her head in two more times, until she was dead. It's not clear if Stephen killed Shirley because he couldn't risk her reporting him to the police or out of bloodlust. Regardless, he drove her to an industrial park, a large area zoned for development. There, he dumped her body near the road, removed the ties and duct tape, and went home. That night, 32-year-old Delaware State Police Detective Joe Swiskey received a call about Shirley's body. Swiskey was a young, successful officer known for his wry sense of humor. Despite being on the force for seven years, he was new to major crimes. This was his first homicide as a detective, and nothing could have prepared him for what he saw. He rushed to the industrial park, perhaps knowing the rain was washing away more evidence by the second. His headlights splashed over the lot, illuminating Shirley's body in a horrific spotlight. She was beaten, mutilated, and tossed haphazardly on the ground. It was a shock to the officer. Because of the downpour, there were no footprints, fingerprints, or tire tracks to collect. Plus, there were no witnesses. It was extremely bad luck. Experts collected Shirley's body and ran tests to find out more. They were surprised to find Shirley had not been raped. Still, it was clear she'd suffered. Detective Swiskey thought that for a homicide as brutal as this one, the killer must have known the victim personally. So for weeks, he interviewed all of Shirley's friends, ruling out suspect after suspect, all to no avail. While Swiskey grasped at straws, Stephen quietly tied up loose ends. He worried someone would recognize his car, so he took the vehicle to a scrapyard and had it destroyed. 
Now he had the opportunity to look for a whole new van that would fit all his needs, especially the ones only he knew about. At a dealership, Stephen browsed large utility vans to store all of his electrical tools. That's when he saw her, a blue Ford. One detail that caught his eye was the rainbow license plate. His kids would get a kick out of that. He went around back and threw open the double doors. There was plenty of room inside, with white curtains for privacy. Stephen loved it immediately. Once he purchased the van, Stephen installed blue carpeting on the inside, making it more comfortable. He organized all of his electrical tools in the back, pliers, hammers, and duct tape, everything he needed for work or play. Stephen couldn't stop thinking about the next time he could feel that power again. And almost exactly seven months after Shirley's murder, on June 28, 1988, Stephen was back cruising Route 40 in his shiny Ford van. Sometime after 11.30 p.m., he spotted his next opportunity. 31-year-old Kathy A. DeMorrow, dressed in stonewashed jeans and a pink sweater. It's unclear what she was doing. Her roommate said she was merely eccentric. Perhaps she was out on a walk alone. However, she wasn't by herself for long. Stephen pulled to the side of the road. He coaxed Kathy into his car, then drove her to an isolated location, someplace where nobody would hear her screams. Just like before, Stephen overpowered Kathy, then bound her hands and duct taped her mouth. As she cried, he took out his tools. Stephen mutilated Kathy's nipple and watched the blood wash over her skin. She tried to fight back, kicking and thrashing, but Stephen was too powerful. The 30-year-old took a tool, possibly the same one he'd used to murder Shirley, and smacked Kathy's buttocks repeatedly. It seemed he'd found a much more brutal version of the spanking he'd watched in his porn films. Just like the last time, Stephen strangled Kathy with a wire, then killed her by slamming his tool into her head three times. According to a 2010 study in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, this repetitive behavior was likely a ritual, a unique set of actions a killer must follow to gain sadistic, sexual gratification. Mutilation and dismemberment are often included in these rituals, which explains why Stephen used his shears to cut off his victim's nipple. The actions can evolve over time, and Stephen seemed to discover new ways to humiliate his victims with each kill. He put Kathy's body in the back of his van and drove her to a construction site off of Route 40. There he threw her naked into the dirt, and he posed her arms spread out wide, almost like a crucifixion. Early the next morning, a group of construction workers found Kathy's body and called the authorities immediately. Newcastle County Police Detective Sergeant Jim Hedrick picked up the phone. The 32-year-old was a veteran officer with nearly a decade of experience. As a seasoned cop, he thought he'd seen it all. But when he glimpsed Kathy's body, he felt chilled. He said, I knew this was some bad juju. The signs of mutilation and torture were so specific, it reminded Sergeant Hedrick of a murder he'd read about in a police report a few months back. So he reached out to the head detective on the Shirley Ellis case, state police officer Joe Swiskey. Swiskey had been looking for Shirley's killer for months. Now he wasted no time. He rushed to the scene. 
The second he looked at Kathy DeMauro, Swiskey knew it was the same murderer. There was no hard evidence, but all of the injuries were the same, except Kathy's torture looked even worse. It seemed the killer was only getting more brutal. This time, since rain hadn't disturbed the scene, they had much more evidence to go on. Experts collected blue fibers covering Kathy's body, strings from the van's carpet. They made casings of the tire tracks found near the young woman. The two detectives compiled their evidence and sent their information to a friend, an FBI agent and profiler in Baltimore's Behavioral Science Unit named Jim Zopp. Sergeant Hedrick put it bluntly, Jim, we have these two cases very eerily similar. In my gut, I think we have a serial killer. The agent suspected Hedrick was right. And based on the second body, it looked like the murderer was only going to become more dangerous the longer he remained free. To stop the killer, a group of behavioral scientists were going to build a case and get more resources to bring the criminal down. They just needed Hedrick and Swiskey's help. They gathered the materials for a formal presentation and hopped in their cars, ready to make the drive to the FBI Academy in Virginia. But they weren't alone on the road. Stephen drove endlessly through the night, thinking about his actions. As far as we know, nobody in his community suspected him of committing the ultimate sin. He was alone and safe with his secrets. The memories of Shirley and Kathy's murders played in his mind, like his own personal bondage porn. They repeated over and over, lulling him like the rhythmic pulse of cars passing on the highway. But it wouldn't be long until he needed new material. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with part two of The Route 40 Killer, where Stephen's murders prompt the most dramatic manhunt in Delaware history. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all of the Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Kit Fitzgerald, edited by Ben Caro and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kitovich, and sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Greg Polson and me, Vanessa Richardson. 